and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. On Wednesday, June 14th, the German government presented the country's first ever national security strategy. This highly anticipated document lays out Germany's international role and the principles of its foreign policy, including the three key pillars of active defense, resilience, and sustainability. The development of the national security strategy took place against the backdrop of Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine, which has triggered a significant paradigm shift in German thinking on foreign and security policy known as the Zeitenwende. However, Germany has received criticism over the past year for being slow to translate this new thinking into concrete action, with the government coming under pressure to meet its defense spending pledges and to speed up its military procurement. The national security strategy has also faced scrutiny for the delays in its publication, owing in large part to disagreements among the different parties making up Chancellor Olaf Scholz's coalition government in Berlin. So today we will examine Germany's new national security document and its significance for the future of German foreign policy. And to do that, we're very happy to have Christian Molling and Constanza Stelzenmuller back with us on the podcast today. So welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Um, Quick bios. Christian is deputy director of the Research Institute and head of the Center for Security and Defense at the German Council on Foreign Relations. And Constanza is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe and the inaugural holder of the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations at the Brookings Institution. Okay, so I'm going to confess I have not read the entire document yet but I have picked up bits and pieces of the reactions online. So maybe I can turn to both of you to give us uh, what we call here in the United States, the Cliff Notes version, the short condensed um, lazy person's guide to these important literary pieces. Um, what do Brussels Sprouts listeners need to know and to understand about the national security strategy? And Christian, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, I'll try and do that. And you already mentioned the, the three <coughs> pillars the um it's called in germany it's called robust defense um resilience and sustainability um and along these three pillars you will find a problem analysis um as well as uh, some solutions that are proposed in the other documents 70 pages in german i think it's a little bit short in in the english version uh which you can find online and yeah i mean it's <clears throat> the most important thing it's it's the first ever national security strategy that that we had we never did this before for several reasons that the excuse was always um because we are such good europeans we just stick to the eu documents and the nato documents so we don't need a national strategy um etc cetera, etc cetera. and then it was in the coalition agreement so it was an obligation to the government to do this and then only came the war which of course made this more urgent and i think there you have to see that this this document basically is the first uh, whole of government um, explanation of how the site vendor is perceived and uh, what we what we take from from there um, I think that's that's the most important thing that you can see in there um, and without going too deep in the analysis what what you can what you what my, my take at the end is um, it's an evolution uh, it's an evolutionary document that we have so it's getting better it's interesting but as we live in revolutionary times which is then signified by the Titan vendor we are possibly not closing the gap between the needed ambition and what is currently in the document and there's a lot of a lot of how can I say backward looking in terms of historical assessment and also backward looking in terms of a path dependency of what is proposed in the document by the various branches of the government as as kind of normal or ordinary strategies are are scripted um that is all understandable but i guess that the the biggest criticism i would say is that we currently don't live up to the to the ambition necessary um with regards to the fact that we are in a very specific phase and germany has been very quiet on security over the last decades so there is a kind of a structural deficit that we have in thinking which you can also then see um in in the document um maybe one one second point on the 
uh, on the criticism, it's you could focus very much on on the defense side. I think that the more important important thing for Germany is very much the uh, the divide that we have um, <clears throat> constitutionally, but also in practice, because between internal and external security, and that means especially to get the practical, how do you counter foreign influence operations on domestic grounds? Um, and there you have the perfect crossing between internal and external security. How do you fight disinformation? How do you fight uh, foreign direct investments that are on critical infrastructure? How do you assess this? All these things are rather complicated currently in Germany. And although the strategy says it is an integrated strategy, it has an integrated approach, this is still stovepiped or you know siloed in in the in the document um, very much. But I would kind of stop it there. Maybe with the last positive note, uh, I was really struck by that. The language on defense is much more forward-leaning than we had it in the coalition agreement and in other documents before. So it's very clear on the role of allied defense and deterrence and on nuclear deterrence. So there's something uh, I think we successfully hammered in that this is kind of the the, the pillar uh, if you want to play an important role in NATO and for European security. All right, Constanza, over to you. All right. Um, I'm in a similar situation, which is that, uh, you know, I woke up to this and I've been galloping around all morning. Uh, so I too have been reading bits and pieces, but I have actually sat in a meeting with Christian to discuss this. And of course, Christian and I have both been part of these discussions for in Germany for longer than we care to remember. And also, I, I think it's fair to say we have been attempting to answer other people's and other countries' questions about our strategies for longer than we care to remember. And I tend to agree with Christian that this is sort of a mixed bag. I mean, you know, thank God we finally have it, right? Um, it, I remember when Christian and I were part of a project that ended up in a paper called New Power, New Responsibility uh, back in 2012, 2013, uh, when and it was an attempt by think tanks uh, with some support and input from people in government agencies to you know, draft elements of what could be a national security strategy. And that was also already seen as dangerously you know, uh, uppity um, from the think tanks and, and something that really the national level didn't, didn't want. Uh, remember at the time then there was in 2014 at the Munich Security Conference, a concerted attempt by the president, Gauck, by the foreign minister, then Steinmeier, and defense minister, then a certain Ursula von der Leyen, uh, to say, yes, we need to do, we need to do more. We need to lean into defense and security, and we need to be faster. And then um, that was in February 2014, and shortly after that, in the spring, uh, Putin annexed Crimea, right? And that sort of derailed the discussion. I think for a long time. We then had a defense white book in 2016 that came across as a sort of national security strategy in disguise. Uh, people who drafted it would tell you, you know, behind uh, their hands that, you know, you, all that really needed to be done was for this document to be carried over into the chancery uh, physically. And then, you know, if anybody cared to adopt it, then that would already be, be a useful draft. And of course, the foreign ministry had its own review process in 2014. But all of that, you know, at the same time, the US had mandated national security strategies every four years, mandated by Congress. The Brits were writing strategies, the French were writing strategies, and we were looking really, frankly, you know, like uh, an adolescent that was reluctant to grow up. And, and so, yes, this is an improvement, but I agree with, with Christian that um, this can only be the baseline for efforts and the, the rest of this government's tenure and perhaps even for the next government. Consanza, the context of this document, obviously it's being drafted against the backdrop of the war, as I said in the intro, but was this agreed to that they would embark on this endeavor before the invasion or after? Yeah, like, it was in the coalition agreement. Okay. It was in the coalition agreement that they would do this. And the, and the parties, I mean, I think the thing to remember, Christian, tell me if you disagree, but I think the, the thing that's really important to remember in this context was that after 16 years of Angela Merkel's tenure, mostly at the head of a grand coalition between conservatives and social democrats, there was a, a feeling across the board, and I think including in our own party, that Germany needed transformational change. 
The thing was that the the parties that ended up in the traffic light coalition meant by traffic transformational change, social justice in the case of the social democrats, climate transformation in the case of the greens, and in in the case of the liberals getting back to debt and perhaps you know better uh, better law and order. Nobody thought that this was going to involve defense and security. That the, that was the one transformation where perhaps the Greens said we need a sharper edged foreign policy vis-a-vis an increasingly aggressive Russia and China. But nobody, I think, anticipated what was going to happen to Germany. The the the, the word, of course, that we all know by now uh, is Zeitenwende. Um, the the need to really completely. Uh, review the Germany's entire security posture after the Russian invasion. And I think that it is fair to say that that all of the members of the cabinet and, and this entire government were unprepared for this. And I think that they have, in their own minds, done heroic things and attempted to live up to the challenge. And so, some things really have been astonishing, like the decoupling from Russian energy. But in other ways, I think the lack of experience and the lack of uh, connection with international security debates does show both in their political practice and in this document. Christian, I would be curious to say to hear what you think. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we <clears throat> we had this uh, observation very early on that uh, although there's a lot of a lot of goodwill, um, the the grammar, the literacy is not there so in the job description of of the chancellor you don't have to have a uh security knowledge right and uh angela merkel shied away from that since for four years right so that that wasn't a, mm. a topic necessary to drive the country and to create the domestic stability economic welfare etc cetera, etc cetera. we thought at least it wasn't wasn't necessary and all that theoretical exercise that how it was taken at least by parts of of, uh, of the government, when they signed it into the coalition agreement, that all become then very real uh, for for the very first time. And what you the document also speaks to this to this situation, as Constanze has told you know to be really unprepared about it. And it's it is in in a way um, a document that is also not that much informed by the historical debate that we had that Constanze mentioned about responsibility and power um so there's a lot of things where you could say well, there's there's something missing we had been uh, we had been at a different point before um so it's we're somewhat reinventing the wheel the document is is rather defensive on on how to put it and especially on um so that yeah, as every document there's a lot of commitments in there what you want to do in the future but you know a little bit fuzzy here and there but the question of what this country is what germany is in the international order in in the in in the global in the global world and the role it wants to play um that is not really clear in that it wants to contribute to everything here and there you know but nothing completely but bearing in mind that this is one of the most important countries in the world with a lot of uh, political and economic power you would have possibly expected a more forward-leaning role and it's it's still there it's very backward looking in terms of yeah we want to help and contribute but it looks a little bit like like i wouldn't say stealing out of the responsibility but you know shying away from it and say okay we take we take the responsibility for for making european enlargement and integration happening which is one of the biggest things but where germany as a country that has profited from european integration so much um and has been de facto a driver for such a long time uh, you could ex- could expect that this is something you could basically take um, as a as a task on board because wherever we put our eggs, uh, that's the direction Europe will go, right? And this is something where, yes, for, for the moment, I, the impression is that our allies are okay with it, happy. They all say, "Yeah, cheers, good, good to have the strategy." But at the end of the day, the question remains open, and that is a a geopolitical and historical question: is where does Germany stand in Europe? So if you go down in history, also down to Prussia, it's a reoccurring question of where does Germany stand? And if you take the reactions from Poland in 2014 when the Russians invaded uh, Ukraine, they they got anxious and really crying about Germany. So where do you stand? Because we haven't been very forward-leaning on where we stand. 
And this question is muted in the strategy, not only where we stand geographically in Europe, but what is the responsibility we take up politically as the most powerful nation on the European continent? Uh, well, I thank you so much for this uh, very rich discussion. <clears throat> Christian, I, uh, gosh, I've changed my questions five or six different times now, having heard both of you speak. And I, what struck me though is I, I, um, uh, you know, I've been a victim of the U.S. national security strategy for years. We've always had under different names. Uh, we've had as strategies, and a lot of times they were written and 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 no one noticed except people within the Beltway. And, and but it but it's you know it was a political document. It really was more trying to check a box, but also sending signals to the Hill about what the budget could look like. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, it was, you know, but, and what you were just describing, what both of you were describing is something deeper, much more searching, almost another kind of document. I mean, so the U.S. national security strategy and the German strategy, uh, the way you've described you, the way you described that you wish it was talking about Germany and Germany's place in the world it's two different documents, two different audiences, two different purposes. Um, uh, you know, not at all the same thing. Even today, even the mm. one that just was put out to, um, this year by the the administration was unique in that it's it linked the strategy of the way we laid out what we wanted to do in terms of defense and military, linked it to the budget. So you had something that wasn't just a lot mm -hmm. of fluff about any money. <clears throat> had fluff and then links to the money. And so it, it rose up in terms of a, a document. But what you all are describing is fascinating to me too, because you're really getting at deeper German problems. That's really comes out of, comes that has to be addressed in another kind of document, to my mind. Um, unless this is what mm. you think the document should be. In other words, you're asking existential, deep questions about Germany and Germany's role and Germany's people based on so many other things is so different than than what we do with our documents. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so I guess my question is, uh, do you think the German people themselves will read this? And this will begin the debates that we've always talked about or needed in German society about what the people think Germany's role should yeah. be. Yeah. Do the American people read the national security strategy? I don't think so. They watch the movie. <laughs> There's a movie I'm that comes out. <laughs> Yeah, I wish. Yeah, a Netflix series. I mean, come on, Jim. But, that's but, that's but, not the criteria. But no, no, no. But let me finish my question, though, Constanza. So, you know, we've always talked about, and you and I have talked about this, Constanza, that there needed to be more of a debate, a security and strategy discussion among among the German people. So they they begin to focus on Germany's role in terms of its defense and military and place in the world, et cetera. So my question here is. Will this document really be something like ours, which is a within the beltway, just the, you know, a handful of people read it? Or can this prompt in a broader way? Uh, I mean, not necessarily with the person in the street, but I mean, will this get the think tanks and the media and maybe the academics? I was beginning to have that kind of conversation that people have said Germany needs to have. And I'll mm. end this. We're already having that conversation, Jim. It's not, you know, this doesn't didn't arise in a vacuum. I mean, Christian, you're the one living in Berlin, so I should leave this question to you. But it is already the result of a of a decade long conversation, and the think tanks and the academics saying we need we. It's not serious to not have a national security strategy for a country like Germany, right? Christian, I, I think I should leave this to you. I'm sorry. No, no, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's better to put it really in, in a nutshell. So it, it depends on 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 the one and on the government, but also kind of on us as the think tankers to now make the best out of the document. The document is the document, full stop. You know, and yeah. all the deficits that we identify is basically define the work program from our point of view for for taking this forward. And Jim, would would you describe? Um, that's a very important point um, because. Um, you have a certain routine as other countries have it. So there may be not the necessity to read the document because there is a, such an established routine and there 80% of the document always the same, possibly. Uh, and there's also a routine how to take it forward and you know to read the important parts of it. This is this routine does not exist in Germany, um, which also means that that makes this 
this document, not only because the first time, makes it unique because it is a, another element of of creating this routine, of creating a a, a strategic mainstream, if you want to. You know, I right. mean, if, if you write a strategy, I guess you would go, you know, 10 degrees into, into one direction or 10 degrees into the other direction. That is basically what you can move around just because you have a mainstream understanding of what the U.S. is, what its role in the world is, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You don't need to write it down in the document because that's established. That's the same for the French. That's somewhat the same for, for other countries as well. So they don't have to negotiate. And you're right, the, the document is not there for negotiation. Um, it is a negotiated document. It should provide the grounds for further doc, uh, negotiation politically and and on the societal basis. That That is pretty much um, the thing for the objective being to establish this routine, or you can call it strategic culture or whatever you want to. And that's, this is something um, I, I, I take as, as, as the task out of, out of this whole thing to take the document, make it on the one hand, you know, sharpen it, uh, help the government sharpen it on the one hand, but also transfer the message what's in there and what is important for the people on the street. Why does it matter to you? Um, or how to make it, uh, that it matters basically to the people. And the last thing on, on, on the budget thing, I mean, this is, this is the, the most ambiguous contribution of some parties in the in, in, in the government is that they are on, on one or two um, uh, elements in, in the document. It's written that this document has no budgetary implications. So there is no funding for whatever is in there, or at least no additional funding for what is in there. If you compare that to the peace dividend that we have um, cashed in, um, and by that financed our comfort zone for such a long time, it also prevents us from from talking about difficult decisions. If you make an assessment of what that would cost to make Germany and the Europe more secure, you could have an interesting discussion of how do we finance this, and this is a generation question as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One question I want to put in there, I, it seems like one area where there does appear to be more criticism is um, over the vagueness of the document. And I mean, Christian, I think you were talking about that a little bit. Um, to what extent is that reflective of disagreements either within the coalition or within Germany more broadly? That, you know, if there are many different views in order to arrive at the consensus language, you often end up with the lowest common denominator, kind of think some the, the vanilla mm. version that everyone can agree to. And I wonder if you're picking this apart, um, you know, do you, do you see areas maybe where there was likely to be most disagreement? Kind of what, what do you think were the most contentious issues or where there are uh, the most variety of opinions or assessments um, that maybe the document has had to paper over? Yeah, from the, so in the document itself, there is no, um, there are no contentious issues. Um, they have been cut out. Um, one of the most contentious issues but that has been cut out in the process rather early was the issue of the National or Federal Security Council. So the kind of the institutionalization of a new security approach, if you want to, that is that is not there. Um, and you can debate whether that's useful or not. Um, it creates different problems, uh, but it may elevate the quality of the document. But um, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the document reads very much as a compromise um, also from the language between uh, three different parties, and there's a lot of domestic politics in there, not with regard to what is left out, but also in some of the wording where you can see, okay, this is, you wouldn't expect this and that language in a, in a national security strategy necessarily. So, but their domestic politics um, fights have been have been pushed into the, into the document as well. There was another fight, Christian, wasn't there about cyber hackbacks? That's true, yeah, that as well. That as well. So that that was about whether we do hackbacks or and, and now what, what we do and that's that's an interesting twist. We don't do hackbacks. What, what we you could do it a little bit cheeky. We do preventive hacks. Yeah. Which is okay. <laughs> you can try and fun. do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let Let's see what 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 comes out yeah. of this. But there's there there's some of the hooks where you can jump into. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but I guess the the bigger. Uh, the bigger thing is, you know, 
so what do you do with the government and also the bureaucracy, which has to implement this all now, uh, misses the political priorities. It's a lot of, that's that's the result. I mean, you could say that's just mirroring the fact that the government is so diverse on it. Um, but that's, of course, mirroring then that now you need additional work to figure out what, what the political priorities are, if they matter to you. Or you say, oh, it's all done and now we basically, we do it. And the other thing is that, um, there's a lot of work has been shifted into the future by saying, yeah, there will be another strategy on this and another strategy on that. The China strategy is not there deliberately because, I mean, that is also part of the explanation for not having the federal um, Security Council is that the fear by one or the other political actor to to limiting its own power, giving up power, which is, so there you're back to the typical politics of um, of um, the politics dimension of such a document, of course, sure. Anything else jump out at you, Constanza, where there's more, I mean, I, and I, I haven't read the specific language on China, but that's another area where I think there's some confusion about what the coalition's approach is, um, you know, with the Greens probably, probably preferring a harder, more hawkish approach, um, Chancellor Scholz maybe in a different place. So I don't, I don't, I don't, we're in, you know, in your understanding of what the current debate is like in, in Berlin, Constanza, um, sure. what do you think were the areas that where, where there may have been most um, disagreements or debates in yeah. put together, in particular, the defense piece of this? Well, well, let's, let's take the China part. Okay. I think because that crystallizes much of what we're talking about here. Um, and I do think we should come back to the internal domestic aspects of, of security and defense as well. But on China, I, I actually want to push back at you, Andrea. The language here is what has become standard, which is that um, China is uh, increasingly a systemic rival, but it also is on some levels you know, just a competitor and on some levels a partner. We are currently seeing the Biden administration walk, uh, walking back or trying to contain uh, a much more aggressive uh, rhetoric coming out of Congress, right? And trying to establish a workable relationship with a China that is clearly much more assertive and aggressive, you know, than it, than it was uh, only, you know, half a half a year ago. I think that if we're honest, um, all Western nations have uh, a genuine problem with managing their considerable interdependence, and that is true for the United States as well, with a, a China that is becoming more and more assertive, not just in its own regional space, but on the global level and within our own political spaces, right? That, that's the issue, and none of us have really resolved this. I think there is a feeling in Europe that because of Germany's location, its power, and the fact that it is surrounded, uh, particularly on its eastern flank, by smaller, more vulnerable nations, some of some of whom have uh, sort of experienced sort of very very aggressive Chinese influence operations, that Germany has a special responsibility here, right? And responsibility, if I if I see this correctly, is a word that the strategy doesn't use, and which we ten years ago in our own power and responsibility document uh, used in the time. So the. And the German document, I think, sort of, you know, does a little bit of hedging. We were discussing this earlier, Christian and I, in the sense that it makes these slightly veiled references to multipolarity, which I think are a form of saying, you know what, we're all really worried um, about the American elections in 2024, right? Um, I understand there are some Americans who are worried about that as well, right? Um, the... My response to that would be, well, you know, in that case, how about, you know, validating the extraordinary transatlantic um, posture of this administration by doing more in European burden sharing, right? Um, and you could say that the security strategy does some of that by saying, by, by validating and in fact repeating the language of the NATO strategic concept, right? On nuclear and on conventional deterrence. That is, as, as Christian was saying, much stronger than the coalition agreement of the traffic light coalition was was willing to was was willing to be and so i i fear that as is so often the case with these documents um this uh the strategy is trying to eat its cake and have it 
maybe maybe on the, on the China bit because this is an, an interesting angle also to the future of German U.S. and uh, European U.S. relations. I mean, uh, um, so there, there's a mixture in, in Europe of um, you know being afraid of China mm. and not what to don't know what to do in practice. In principle, we know it, but it's hard because that means that you lose wealth possibly out of that. <clears throat> but from a, a my impression is from a U.S. point of view um you you can't let that go because from a longer term perspective um i mean let's take the taiwan scenario out of it because i think there's a lot of military risk um whether the question is whether the chinese would do it my impression is the chinese would much more go over, over foreign influence operations and trying to to break up the alliances and political frameworks in europe um, and not militarily, but economically and through other ways, eat it one by one. Um, so this is boiling the frog strategy much more than anything else. And then the question is whether that is a comfortable situation that is created by that for the US um, compared to um, to other scenarios, right? I mean, the, the, the Taiwan scenario is so graspable and it's so clear, but I think the... the, the the Chinese are not dumb people. I mean, they're clever. So they will always try to possibly even to do both, right? To do an indirect approach and a direct approach. I at least have the the ability to threaten uh, to do both. And this is something where um, it, it matters what, what language is used, whether Germany repositions uh, into a little bit of a, how to say, equal distance between the US and China and other poles in the world. Um, or not, because what, what this multipolar thing possibly brings in, I'm, I'm speculating here because when the opportunity to talk to the to the foreign office on that, why they use that language, but the multipolarity takes power just as a resource and, and sucks the normative dimension out of power. But I would still argue it makes a difference whether there is more power on the Chinese government or the Chinese world or the U.S. world, where yes, you may have a a, a second Trump turn, <laughs> uh, but having that in a in, in a country that is still a democratic country has a different flavor than having more power to an autocratic country, um, which is by definition an autocratic country. So the country, you know, yes, the, the U.S. has its own societal challenges, but by Germany positioning somewhere in the middle and say, yeah, you know, we're equal distance from all of that and power, you know, it's just a question of accumulation of power um, and we will do the same, just uh, drags all the normative uh, dimension and the value dimension of who has power to do what out of the whole equation. Uh, and that, that also cuts both ways. That is also a question where I would say the US should be interested because um, it's not about burden sharing, but it's a kind of question of soft underbellies of weak spots um, of interdependencies that also exist between the Europeans and the Americans, which also then cuts both ways. One thing that uh, that I think a lot of people in the in Washington particularly are going to be looking at is where uh, the, the strategy talks about defense spending. As you know, that's the thing that we have the drum that we're always beating. And I I felt it was interesting the way it was written in the strategy. It had an interesting, two interesting caveats um, that I hadn't seen before. One was the average that they talked about. The 2% would actually be an average of spending over a, a, a couple of years. But the second thing I found was really interesting. It was uh, the, it seemed to say that this, the 2% uh, would be driven by trying to meet the capability requirements that NATO puts on Germany. Uh, and I think that's interesting because uh, I've always heard that uh, a lot of in the past that a lot of the uh, of uh, German procurement and the German military organization was fashioned around what NATO wanted the German military to do uh, to look like. It wasn't going to be much more than that. And so this would reflect that approach. But the thing is, to me, for all the other countries, including the United States, that two percent of GDP um, of uh, to go towards defense. It is not just to meet, uh, you know, the capability requirements that NATO gives nations, but to to meet everything. Uh, and so that made me wonder if the uh, Bundeswehr was going to miss out on uh, 
you know, that, that, that if that 2% just goes towards German uh, military requirements, military capability requirements that NATO, there's other things that need to be bought too that Germany doesn't, that NATO doesn't say anything about, uh, but that the German military needs. And so I'm wondering, uh, you know, it just, it, it seemed to be really prioritizing the, uh, the NATO capability goals uh, and maybe leaving other things out that, uh, that actually the German military needs. But I, I found that as a very interesting caveat I hadn't, I hadn't seen before. What do you all think about that, the, those caveats? Is this something to worry about or is this just something that you would, you would predict uh, for a paper like this? Um, <clears throat> so maybe on, on the first part, on, on the average, um, um, that's a little bit tricky. You could argue, I mean, if you get an average 2%, that, that's a good thing, right? You don't need to, uh, on a longer term spending, especially if you start the spending, the absorption rate is not that high. So if you do the two, if you do less than two percent, then two percent, and then later on more than two percent, right. then it's fine because it 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 prevents also uh, bad spending and scandals on spending, right? And that's the right. uh, that's the last thing that that you, especially if you're not so uh, familiar with it, like Germany, you don't want to have it. So there's a lot of skepticism on on spending the more uh, more of the money. The problem is much more on the sustainability of the spending, um, because right. we can only reach the the two percent by the special fund. The special fund will end, um, uh, end rather soon. Um, yep. So you will st stay there with a lot of uh, half tanks and half uh, half ships um, that are not financed, or you start cutting again. And we are running, so that the um, the defense budget is still uh, in a structural deficit. So we are underspending compared to what we have to spend, uh, and the the, um, the special budget is not making up for it. And what we don't see, uh, and there's a complete mismatch, is in the current fiscal planning. There's also no plan to increase the regular defense spending to make up for the kind of artificial increase that now comes to the special budget. Right. So we will fall down, uh, and this fall, but this fall down, of course, comes only for the next government. Um, which is uh, just a coincidence, of course, um, and, and that makes it really tricky, right? So there is the the the, the long term commitment that was in the speech by Scholz and has been repeated is not reflected in the fiscal planning um, for now. And if it's not in there now, then you know that the planners will say, "Yeah, but this, if there's no money, we can't start planning on it." That's that's against German law, just simply, you know. So we we are we are back to square one to a certain extent. The one hundred billion, yes, that's fine. But just to be pretty clear, that's that's a, a fraction of what is needed to make German armed forces fit again. If that's for NATO or for something else, that's a secondary question. I would say. I mean, ninety five percent of the of the capability targets that we have are driven really by NATO. So that's NATO. Or classically, it's NATO on the one hand. And then industrial policy, which would never say it is industrial policy, but industrial policy um, and political partnerships um, in multinational projects. On the other hand, that characterizes the way how we how we shift the uh, how we shape the capabilities. Um, but the more defining point is we don't have enough um, enough resources to shape these things, and we will be on a cutting agenda rather soon. Yeah, yeah, that I can see that. Constanza, do you want to add anything to that? Um, not to the financial side. If you want to go on there, I'm, that's Christian's uh, area of expertise, and I'm, I, I'm very grateful it isn't mine. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I find these things uh, mind-numbing and deeply depressing. I, I wanted to point to two other sort of elements that I think are missing and whose lack is somewhat indicative of the, of the disconnect between what we think is necessary and what actually is necessary. If we, if I might go there, and one is that, um, you know, we were talking earlier about Germany's attempts in the past decade to, to conceptualize its role in Europe, and one of the key terms that came up in that time was of Germany as a Gestaltung, Gestaltungsmacht, which translates as a shaping power. Right? It was a, a way of trying to say to ourselves, uh, to political actors, but also to to citizens, you know. Um, given our location and our economic weight in Europe and the political power that we have that we'd like to be in denial about, we actually have a power to shape the strategic environment 
Um, and we should be doing that because otherwise other people will shape it for us. And less mm. benevolent actors will be shaping our environment for us. Arguably, we are now in precisely that situation, right? The, the, the Russians with the invasion of Ukraine, the Chinese with influence operations and very aggressive diplomacy are doing exactly that. Yeah. And this document does not talk about shaping powers, I think, from what I've seen. So my first point, and it's an important one, um, because it also shows um, how defensive in mind and the, the mindset of this document is. The second point, uh, this is something, um, if you will indulge my, my, my uh, re referring to something I've just written, I've written it in German, but it'll come out in English, um, is that I think that we are not mentally prepared for the fact that what we have become accustomed to referring to as partners slash competitors slash strategic rivals with the third leg of that um, three-legged stool sort of being in the ascendancy, I'm sorry, that's a very crooked metaphor, literally, um, that we haven't become accustomed to, to thinking about the mentality of that strategic rival. And it seems to me that we're having something like a cognitive blockade there. And that cognitive blockade plays a role and is most notable in the discussions that we're having, which are absolutely tortured about what kind of negotiations we ought to be encouraging between Ukraine and, and Russia, right? And it's the following, and I will put that out there. Um, I think that the Russians see us as an enemy not just as a strategic rival, but as an enemy, or rather this Putin does, this Kremlin does, the state-funded media do, and they've been you know, poisoning the, the public agora in Russia for long enough for us to have to assume that a lot of the Russian public um, is in agreement with this. And when I say enemy, I mean enemy in the very classical sense, right, of Carl Schmitt, of the 1930s and 1940s in Europe. And I find it odd that we as Germans who, you know, were the enemy, not just of our own democracy, but the enemy of the civilized world, um, nearly a hundred years ago, should find it so hard to conceive of another country seeing us as enemies, right? Um, and I'm afraid that that's where we are. Um, I'm going to, because I'm not a China expert, leave out the question of the, whether the Chinese see us in this way, but I think Christian and I both know China experts in Germany who think that, you know, who have studied original Chinese writing on strategy and on Europe and, and to have a very bleak view of Chinese perceptions of, of the West. But I think what that suggests, you know, is, is that Somebody who thinks of you as an enemy is not going to want to negotiate with you. And I think we are going to have to translate that recognition into the way that we conceptualize territorial and allied defense in, our, in the way that we propose to integrate Ukraine into the European security order and in the way we conceptualize our relationship with Russia for the foreseeable future. And I can see how that would have been a bridge too far for a German national security document. But I fear, I fear that that is what we are looking at and that perhaps um, the next two years for this government or the next government will still have to cross that bridge, at least intellectually and psychologically. Mm. I don't know, what do you think, Christian? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, with, with yeah. you, Constanza, because I know you have to run in a second. To what extent do you think, I mean, you're, I know you're saying there's kind of a psychological barrier in perceiving things through that lens. And I, I wanted to ask you quickly about um, where you think kind of German public support on Ukraine is in particular. And I know that wasn't obviously a central piece of this national security strategy. But, you know, the, these well, stories about Sarah, um, Vol how do you say it, Wagenknecht, keep popping up in kind of these kind of rallies to cut aid, German aid to Ukraine and other things. And so I wonder if you can just um, describe for us where you think German public opinion is. Obviously, it's an issue here in the United States. And so trying to understand to what extent it's an issue in Germany is also helpful. You know, I think it's, on, I mean, uh, you know, as you say, it's an issue here as well. Um, certainly, and, uh, but not only on the MAGA right, right? Um, 
I frankly am not sure that Zara Wagenknecht, who is a figure on the on the left in the left wing party Die Linke, threatening um, to walk out and found a party of her own, who has been notably floating with the hard right. Um, I'm not sure that she has a political future. I, I'm, I'm not persuaded by that. However, I think all of us are deeply worried about the current soaring poll rates for the hard right alternative for Germany, right? Which have been soaring um, around 18, 19, 20%, which is unprecedented. 10% was what they got in the, in the last national elections. And they're polling at between 25 and 28% in some of the Eastern, uh, the Eastern states of Germany. And this coalition has frankly been politically very lucky in that it has not had any Eastern German elections so far. There will be three in the fall. And those will, I think, be a wake up call for all of Germany and presumably its, neighbor, its neighbors as well. That said, I think um, the, one of the sadder phenomena of this, um, of, of this era of war in Europe is that populists are on the rise everywhere in Europe and including in this country in America, right? Uh, we're seeing them in France, we're seeing them in the, in the UK Tory party, we're seeing them in Poland, where the very hard right Confederatio is pressuring the government party peace and is expecting to go into a coalition with them should they win in the fall Polish um, national elections. Um, we're seeing it in Israel. You know, this is profoundly concerning because these parties are, are anti-system parties. That's an expression that is in, in broad use across these, uh, the, the spectrum of these parties. Um, they're very parochial in many ways, but the thing that unites them is that they're anti-system, by which they mean anti-limited democratic liberal government, constitutional government, which is terrifying. And... And I think that is where that that allows me to turn neatly back to one of the other missing links in this in this national security strategy, which is and it, and it does also unfortunately tie tie back to the concept of the enemy. These people are enemies of constitutional democracy, right? Of the free and open liberal democracy. And the what all the, the security strategy doesn't really manage, although it it would like to do that is to create a seamless spectrum of security and defense, including of democratic institutions, right? Um, against internal and external enemies. And maybe that's also because we're not willing to acknowledge that there are people who are enemies. Now, we, we talked about that in the Cold War when we, had, when we had German terrorism, the Red Army faction, and when of course we had influence operations as well. But I think for 30 years, we, we, we all decided that this was, um, you know, like history had come to an end and we didn't need this concept anymore. And one of the most unfortunate things about the return of this, uh, about this era is, is that we are now facing internal and external enemies again. But I'd really like to hear what Christian thinks about this. I mean, yeah. I hope I'm too dark. No, I think you're, no, no, I think you're on the spot. I mean, the strategy tries to manage the little bit on the surface. So there's some mentioning of extremism, et cetera, et cetera. So here speaks, so to say, the Federal Ministry of Interior. But the deeper running, of course, this document can't go to the deeper running political uh, and societal changes in Germany. That's that's for sure. Um, but I think um, this is something where um, the kind of the, the these, these agents, these domestic agents are, of course, um, interesting and used targets uh, by the Russians, but possibly also by the Chinese, as they are, as Constanza said, they are against the system. So you could easily undermine the system by by fueling these. And we know that this happens, right? So there is uh, money coming from Moscow uh, to our right-wing parties um, just to just to create what the Russians always had in their concept, just to create confusion and friction. And that is that is still taking taking place, and that is something which is I would sometimes even consider more profound as a threat uh, than the military side is currently, uh, and on on the longer term um, also because you can see that you I mean you could draw a conclusion on the Russian side that possibly you can't win the war against uh, against NATO on the military side, and then we know you shift to a different side, 
and there you go for the for the weaker spots uh, that we are happily offering to them um and that's uh um that's it and i guess yeah you're right we, we have unlearned a lot of things um uh and we we, we said we kind of you know say this has always been the case you know we we have never been against this and that um but i think it's it's also true that this is only a story of the end of the cold war right um and Constance mentioned that in another conversation that we had that germany has been a rather uh vigilant um democracy for 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 a very long time and we have put up not only um military capabilities but also police capabilities intelligence capabilities against um foreign and domestic enemies but this has all been taken away and the only thing that was left is i'm, I'm over uh exaggerating a little bit is pacifism and that but that has expanded itself into an all-explaining narrative and now we are we are in a situation where uh, happily this narrative has been crashed by the war uh, mm -hmm. and the but the question is still okay so what will be the new narrative on on uh, on Germany, I think the the idea of resilience and you know robust democracy that that's all fine, um, but it's something where um, it, it it comes with a just to get in the, the uh, a last idea, it is still so uncomfortable to think about this, as it is uncomfortable that we can't negotiate any longer because the 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 experience of the past was. We can buy ourselves out. We have bought ourselves so often out of responsibility globally, et cetera, et cetera. And now you come and, and tell me that's no longer possible. I can't believe that because that has so many unpleasant realities for me that I want to go back to my comfort zone. Um, and so there you're in a catch-22 situation, right? Because that comfort zone has gone. And, and then you have people who are so honest, like the Ministry of Economics, and saying, after this war, we all will be poorer people. Now, this is, of course, nothing where you can win elections by, but it's true. We will have to pay for these things, and in a, either by money or by different ways of suffering for that. And that is an existential thing where possibly the Germans start step-by-step step understanding that this is really a profound change that is going on. And we can't, coming back to my starting point, have a, an extrapolation of policy um, as a solution to these things where we have prevented ourselves from solving crisis, really, or the, 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 the reasons of the crisis, but just buying ourselves out. I mean, and maybe just as a final question, I mean, you, you know, Christian, you're talking about how uncomfortable it's been, but I mean, it, it's, you know, we're just a little over a year after this invasion, we've had the Zeitenwende speech, and now we have the national security strategy, we'll have a China strategy. I guess I want to ask you to look forward a year or two in terms of where you think Germany will be. I mean, are these the beginning steps and you're kind of going through the discomfort now and putting that, that Berlin is now on a new trajectory where this will become more comfortable um, and, and, and that this really has been kind of a, a break with the past and, and on an, an entirely different trajectory in terms of what Germany perceives <coughs> its role and its responsibility in Europe? Or do you think that you know, you know, once the war in Ukraine it settles down, that that there that Germany will once again kind of retreat, like you said, and want to return to its place of comfort. I mean, which, which Germany, or is it too early to tell? It, what which what what Germany is this? Are we are are we on a new path, or is this just a temporary blip given the geopolitical realities, and that Berlin could withdraw once more once it becomes more comfortable to do so? Hmm. You want to start? Okay, very quickly, and then I'm really going to have to run. Um, I don't. I, mean, want I guess if you, I guess a different, like if you picked up a newspaper in two years, kind of like what Germany are you reading about? Yeah, I don't want us to end on a too negative note, right? I mean, I think that this this document, despite some fuzziness, is a serviceable baseline for future discussions in this government for the next two years and for the next government. And that and that's that's good. Um, I also think every time I visit Germany, which is relatively often, I, I feel that the ground is shifting, actually. 
and not just because of, of all the Ukrainian flags that are hanging there and older people who say to me, you know, of course, I'm, I will, you know, I'm, I will reduce my heating in the winter. Um, I mean, we can't let we can't let the Russians blackmail us. Right. Um, that said, last winter was relatively mild in Germany. But um, I do think that sometimes establishment politics gives the German public and German citizens less credit than they ought. Yeah. Um, I think that if you, if you speak to, as a political leader, speak to people directly, tell them what the issues are and what's needed, I think you can take people with you. And one of the problems with our chancellor is, is that he is, by his entire psychological makeup, very reluctant to do that. When he exceptionally does do it, for example, when the other day, two weeks ago, he got heckled by, um, I won't even call them pacifists, by people who were clearly there to make trouble. Um, and he got really angry and he gave a more articulate, lucid and passionate explanation of why Germany is defending in Ukraine than I think we've ever heard him give since the Zeitenbender speech. And everybody was saying, you know, how about you do that a little more often? You would take people with you more. And now I'm really going to have to run. I'm sorry. Otherwise, I will miss a plane. It's really good to talk to you all. Thank it's, you, Constanza. Christian, over to you. Yeah. No, I, I think it's indeed it's too early to tell, but that also says that there is um, opportunity uh, to be taken. Um, and I subscribe to what, what Constanza said about um, if we leave if we leave the chancellor alone. Uh, this may not end up well. So um, turn that around. Germany has taken decisions over the last year, especially with regard to Ukraine, when the pressure was on the highest point. And that is so also from a from a think tank perspective, that's not a nice thing. Um, but it means we are shifting back to a strategy where we have to increase pressure also through talking to allies, activate partners, and you know, speak up um, uh, to uh, to Berlin and say, "Look, guys, you are needed here." And that is not a nice way of doing politics. And we are as think tankers don't do politics, even if the chancellor's office thinks we are doing. Um, but I think that that's that's the opportunity. The opportunity is to keep to keep it going and against the resistance and the unwillingness of parts of of the government, definitely. And um, that will define the outcome. In, in in two years, um, and there is, but there is room for maneuver. And and last point to end on a positive note, I think the, in principle, the good thing about the the current government, and also the chancellor, is they want to do good. Um, it's just that in some areas <clears throat> they have put themselves into the bunkers because they think they know how it works, and it's difficult to explain to them that, sorry, you don't know, and also you don't have to. Because that is, at the end of the day, yes, you're the government, but it's a it's a democracy, and and that's what what Constanza said. I think is very important. What we have seen over the last year is that there is a grand majority of Germans who are quite lucid people. You know, you can trust them if you trust them as adults, and make clear what the opportunities are and what the risks are and what the choices are. You can take them with you, and that worked pretty well. Just treat them as adults, and things will be fine. One small follow-up, Christian, which is your defense minister, who by all accounts is really, has hit the ball out of the park, I guess, and is no post and has been extremely popular, it seems. And so what do you see as his role in driving some of these changes? Um, I mean, he has become um, kind of, how would you say, a rocket star, right? Um, most uh, most popular, most beloved uh, politician, um, I guess he's a professional. He knows that this can go down very quickly. Um, but his so using this popularity is an opportunity. Um, it also takes a little bit of a pressure from the chancellor. So there's a second person which can convey messages. Um, and that's also a good thing. Um, and for the defense part, I mean, I guess Scholz really trusts on him because we have lost one year, which was a, a year in the very decisive period so that basically accounts for one decade you could even argue because there was 
the foreign minister, the name I have already forgotten, um, uh, who has done nothing, and that is really kind of strategic. Oh, oh gosh, so that that's something he has to. He is in a sprint right now to make this up um, and to to cover cover up um, um, the, the things that have not been done. If he is successful, that's good for Scholz as well. If he's not successful, that's also bad for Scholz because the Zeitenwende, that's Scholz's word. So it's a chancellor who is um, who is basically um, on the spot here. Uh, but I guess everybody has experienced that it is was possibly the best choice Scholz could have made uh, to pick him uh, because he's charismatic, he's accepted, uh, and he hits the right tone. Um, so for the moment, he's doing everything right. Um, the next challenge is, so how do you do right things with less money? I guess we'll take that as our cliffhanger. And maybe that's a, <laughs> you know, that can be our yeah, day we'll for, for the next episode. Um, when yeah, we meet you after her. we have the new budget. <laughs> yeah. um, well, Christian and Constanza in her absence, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this has been really useful. I mean, it'll be hot off the press and I think a great resource for people trying to understand and put in context the new national security strategy. So thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks yeah, thank for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.